Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dr. Julia Haggerty, Associate Professor at Montana State University and a University Fellow here at RFF. Julia is a co-author of a recent National Academies report called Accelerating Decarbonization in the United States, and she led the drafting of the report's chapter on public engagement to facilitate an equitable energy transition. In today's episode, I'll ask Julia to describe what public engagement means in this context, what it looks like on the ground, and why it's such an important part of the efforts to achieve domestic climate goals. We'll also talk about why this is hard and what strategies might help overcome the deep divides that we, as a nation, have about energy and climate policy. Stay with us. Julia Haggerty from Montana State University, and also, luckily for us, a new uh, university fellow at Resources for the Future. Julia, welcome to Resources Radio. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We are excited to have you. I'm excited to talk to you, as I as I always am. And um, but I've never asked you this question, which is, um, how did you get interested in environmental topics? We ask all of our guests that question, and I'm really curious about what drew you into this profession or calling or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I think of myself as a person that is really an expert in kind of the resource periphery, and that goes back to my childhood experiences working and living um, part-time up in northern Vermont, where there were very clear examples that the values that maybe urban society might have for rural landscapes were not always working out um, to the benefit of local livelihoods and just general local well-being in kind of remote rural places. And as a kid, I felt really sensitive and kind of outraged about that, thought maybe I would become a lawyer to defend the small family farm. But it's really that kind of inspiration and motivation that has stayed with me um, on a career and educational path that's gone to lots of different rural and remote places um, and eventually kind of ended up at the intersection of where rural and remote issues intersect with bigger infrastructure policy challenges. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that term resource periphery, I don't, I don't think I actually know what that means. Can you explain that term? Yeah, so we think about um, as economic geographers, so asking how does the economy play out in a spatial way to create pockets of advantage or disadvantage depending on where you are. There are places in the world that have really been organized around the export of resources um, for the benefit of production or consumption systems that are often located in what we call the core of the economy. Um, And that can refer to urban areas and also even whole, you know, sort of hemispheres like the northern hemisphere that really controls most of the power in the global economic system or has for a long time. So peripheries refer both to where places are in space, they tend to be remote and not connected as well to urban centers. Um, And they also often have a peripheral kind of level of power um, in the political economy. Mm, That's really interesting. So um, your work on these topics is is really fascinating. And we're going to I think touch on them a little bit, but um, but the main focus of our conversation today 
is going to be on one particular chapter from a really rich and detailed report from the National Academies um, that you uh, were an author on. The report's all about accelerating decarbonization in the United States, but we're going to focus on one chapter, which is focused on public engagement. But before we do that, I'd love for you to give us a thumbnail sketch of the report as a whole. It's like, how many pages? It's like 600 and some pages. So, um, you know, we're asking you to do a lot here in a short amount of time, but it'd be great if you could just briefly let us know what are some of the topics that it covers and who are some of the scholars that contributed to it? Thanks. Yeah. Um, it is a, a very powerful beast, I hope. It's a large report. Um, it's the second, actually, of two reports that come out of a consensus committee from the National Academies. And by that, uh, that's a particular form of report that the National Academies uses to bring together experts to evaluate sort of the nexus of current science and policy issues. So in this case, there was an interim report, just a short report of maybe 250 pages that was written in the year prior to Biden taking office. And the report we're talking about today is what we sometimes call the full report or the second report. And the committee of authors brings together expertise, not just from across engineering and technological expertise, but also the social sciences and from different sectors. So we have not only academics, but also uh, folks that represent philanthropy, nonprofits, and other um, kind of leading thinkers who are working at this intersection of how we decarbonize the economy and also address economic and social justice issues as part of that. And in this large report, uh, we really think about decarbonization from the perspective of all of the individual economic sectors that will need to decarbonize and the particular issues they bring. And by sectors, we're talking about things like the electricity sector, transportation, we're talking about buildings, individual topics like that. And the report has eight of those chapters and also has four cross-cutting thematic chapters and public engagement is one of those. And the report also addresses um, environmental and energy justice, as well as workforce and public health in those cross-cutting sectors. So really trying to take what people often think of as a kind of technological policy problem and also layer into it a concern for the social and economic realities that are part of this big system transition. That's great. And you and your co-authors make a really compelling case as to why those social um, and socioeconomic issues are you know, just as, if not more important than some of the technological issues that might get a little more attention. But before we jump into that, I'd, I'd love for you to just define a term for us. So we're going to be talking about public engagement in the context of deep decarbonization. So um, can you define that term for us, public engagement? What does it mean in this context? Sure. So I think that when many people hear decarbonization, um, and I'll just say that's even in itself maybe a jargony word. We're, we're really talking right about um, how do we take greenhouse gas emissions sort of out of the economy. And a lot of that is in part about building clean energy infrastructure, whether that's generating facilities or uh, more consumer facing technologies like electric cars and other kinds of um, things that we use every day, getting um, the greenhouse gas emissions kind of out of those processes. I think when people hear engagement, they're often thinking about 
stakeholder engagement that comes with particular planning processes or permitting decisions. And that's really important to how we think about public engagement, but it's actually only a small piece of it. So my co-authors, um, and I do want to give a shout out to Clark Miller from Arizona State, who's an important co-author on this, and Academy staff, um, we really think about public engagement more in terms of making as many people in the United States full partners in the energy transition as possible. And we kind of think about this in four different categories in the category of what we call inclusive dialogue. So how can we extend access to discussions and debate and thinking about planning and designing our energy systems to as many people as possible? Another bucket, if you will, is thinking about kind of community and collective benefits. So how do we design an energy system that engages people by ensuring that they are really receiving some benefits in how systems are designed? Um, we do think about meaningful engagement in permitting and siting. And then in our chapter, we also really think about the need for understanding what's happening with the kind of human and social dimensions of energy systems. So that's really about kind of research and education. So public engagement in our thinking is all of those things. And that's really about this goal of recognizing that it is incredibly important to get um, public buy-in into decarbonizing the U.S. energy system. Yeah, and, and we're going to get into detail on that in, in just a minute. But first, I'd love for you to expand a little bit on the point you just made, which is, um, you know, why is this an important topic, right? You, you and your colleagues, as I mentioned, argue that, um, you know, it may be just as important as developing and deploying new clean energy technologies. So why is that? So I think you can think about this in two ways. And you could pick among the two, or you could just live with both of them. And that is that there's both like an instrumental value in thinking this way, as well as an underlying kind of normative commitment. So by instrumental, I just mean this idea that ultimately it is the public that will decide more often than not the pace of decarbonization. And they'll do that through their decisions as individual consumers of technology, as voters and of stakeholders, you know, who are going to respond to these new plans and new infrastructures um, with support, with resistance, with indifference. So if we don't recognize the power that the public has in kind of the pace of deployment, we are really at risk of missing out or slowing down this opportunity. And then more on the normative side, I mean, I think many of us in the climate or energy infrastructure policy space, and of course, those people who live with inadequate energy services every day, recognize that our energy system right now reflects many of the legacies of systemic racism and injustice in our own country. And so, you know, if we fail as policy actors, decision makers, um, to use the opportunity of the energy transition and decarbonization to really address existing inequalities, to achieve some restorative justice, we're really missing out on one of the most profound opportunities in generations to use system change to accomplish some normative goals that I think are, are 
of course, not necessarily everybody's goals, but are well aligned with some of the foundational principles of American democracy. And I just add kind of one other way of thinking about it. And um, there are many who are really passionate about decarbonization, and they often ask, like, what is it going to take to get communities on board? Um, and I think one of the things we're emphasizing in this chapter and in the kind of thinking that goes behind it is, is what would it mean to flip that question and ask, how do we make a decarbonized energy system work for communities, for families, for all people? And that's something a little bit different than just saying, how do we get people on board, if you will? Um, it's a subtle but important shift in the conversation. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Like, um, just flesh out that that distinction and why it matters. I, I totally hear what you are saying. I think there are a lot of, you know, proponents of decarbonization who their, you know, their goal is to find ways to get communities on board, but that doesn't necessarily like center the community and its own priorities. How, how do you think about it? Yeah, I would, I think what you, the way you put it is, is really important. I think we've learned even from other key policy initiatives that the best way, if you're looking for widespread system change and you're looking for participation, sort of willing participation in that system change by many different stakeholders across many varied landscapes, and I'm thinking about work that came out um, early in the climate adaptation days that asked, you know, how do we get communities to plan for climate you know, adaptation. Well, it turns out that if you ask communities what are they already doing and what are their priorities, what are the things they need, and you layer onto that and try to find ways to align with that some of these newer objectives, um, you can perhaps move more quickly than if you come in with a new project and ask, what is it going to take to get you to buy into this project? So I don't know if I'm answering that as, as nicely as you just explained it, but it really is this idea that um, we are a huge country with widely varying contexts for participating in decarbonization, whether through hosting new infrastructure or adopting new infrastructure, and this principle that the fastest way to bring people in is to align those changes with their existing needs and interests. That's a kind of core philosophy that comes out of the scholarship um, that informs this chapter and its policy recommendations. Yeah, that's great. And, and we're going to come back to this topic too in, in a couple minutes. But before we do, I, I think we've been talking a little bit in abstraction um, the last few minutes. So let's put some meat on the bones. Can you maybe think of an example of uh, what a current public engagement strategy looks like in the context of climate policy? Maybe the answer is it doesn't exist. But if you think about the Inflation Reduction Act, for example, like what's what's going on there with public engagement? And then, um, you know, can you help us understand what changes might be useful to have a more robust engagement process that kind of aligns with the recommendations uh, from the report? We can do that. And I'm, I'll just summarize, and I'm sure your listeners have many other places to go to get a deep dive on the Inflation Reduction Act. From my perspective as a person working at kind of the intersection of society and this policy, I think it's important to just describe it as this massive public investment um, that is putting billions of dollars through 
largely through incentives um, and also through some direct spending to, to do climate mitigation. And then it is nested within a larger federal policy portfolio that includes executive orders as well as other acts that really say how can we also address issues with creating good jobs and creating local benefits and doing meaningful engagement. So within that space, thinking about, for example, if we can have time to do it, I would emphasize maybe kind of three things that I see as key engagement initiatives in the Inflation Reduction Act, which we know it's just, it's a vast, vast portfolio of policies. So it's really hard to kind of summarize it. But I think um, we can recognize a couple of key areas that are really emphasized in the Inflation Reduction Act. One is the reliance on community benefits plans as a tool um, that is going to take DOE funding, almost all DOE funding, and seek to link that funding to specific plans for labor and also for other community benefits as part of kind of all major projects. So that is a way to think about engagement and that kind of alignment of these big public investments with local and regional priorities. There are also efforts, direct efforts within the Inflation Reduction Act to address issues with environmental review processes and to try to address innovative public process. And I would say in both of these cases, they're they're kind of two separate issues, but in both cases, what we come up against, these are important policy initiatives. So taking community benefits plans, this is a very thoughtful and and strategic approach given the current policy environment. Um, and it comes out of existing practices for ensuring that development treats communities fairly and well. I think what we're seeing in the implementation of that is that it is very difficult to do this well. And that is partly because of the scope of the effort and also partly because of what these federal programs meet in terms of the local and regional landscape. And in many parts of the country, we really don't have a robust set of ongoing dialogues that are inclusive dialogues that address the needs of many diverse, particularly the least advantaged stakeholders in a conversation about economic and infrastructure investment in their region in the way that it would be necessary for local actors to kind of meet these um, large DOE projects and the community benefits plan planning process with the kind of pace and capacity that we might hope is available. So there are many good people, I think, working really hard. What we've heard from information gathering sessions as part of developing the report is that there is no shortage of will and creativity and commitment 
in agencies like the DOE to implement something like the community benefits planning process, there is still just a huge gap in the capacity both within those agencies and outside of the agencies in both the industry sector um, and also in kind of local communities to really hit the ground running with those processes. And that's just because they're new and we haven't been operating in that way. So um, some of the things we recommend, for example, around community benefits plans is addressing both the need from within federal government and at the more local and state level to build up that capacity. And that looks like programs, like a recommendation that we really take seriously as a nation, the need to develop a public engagement workforce. It looks like targeted capacity building through things like legal clinics to help community members and community-based organizations understand what they should be asking for in community benefits plans. Um, and it looks like even asking potentially non-governmental actors like civil society to think about funding regional dialogues around planning and economic development to kind of keep those conversations going and meet a gap that exists where federal agencies might not have the place-based personnel to really carry out those programs. That is also interesting and um, really fascinating recommendations coming from the report. And, you know, one of the, the challenges that the recommendations kind of lead to uh, is is that issue of, of capacity. Uh, and one of the constraints that we have is time. Uh, and the, so when I think about challenges to implementing, you know, some of these, these worthy goals, the first one that comes to mind for me is the need for speed and the need for really thoughtful, careful public engagement. So as you know, I imagine everyone listening to this episode knows, to meet the emissions reduction goals that are articulated in the report, or to you know achieve ambitious climate targets like 1.5 C or 2 C, you know we in the U.S. and all around the world need to essentially build faster than ever before these large infrastructure projects, and at the same time, you know we need to do all this public engagement to try to be sure um, that it's that it's equitable. But but that engagement takes time and it can be contentious. So how do you think about the potential tension there, or or do you see it as a tension? That's a great question, and I know it is top of mind for many people watching this issue. I want to answer it in two ways. I want to just briefly highlight that the overall report starts with a really important observation that is specific to this current federal policy portfolio. And that is that largely the current policy portfolio, which is very hopeful and really is so important as a first major step into climate mitigation in the United States that is largely an incentive-based portfolio and it really does miss some of the opportunity to use regulations and standards to help shape market forces. So that's one answer that just says we should anticipate that this issue of time um, could partially be addressed by a cleaner and more comprehensive policy portfolio. That said, given the current policy portfolio, I think the most simple answer is that when it comes to deployment and adoption of new technologies, you're by and large going to move at the speed of trust. And if you try to move faster than that, you risk backlash. So I don't, I think, 
I just can't imagine a situation in which moving faster actually means moving faster and doesn't create, um, in most cases, kind of backlash. That said, I think I would just harken back to my previous comments that a challenge that we have is we're asking for a set of dialogues and a kind of participation at both a scale and a depth that is largely unfamiliar in many parts of the country in terms of the degree to which not just everyday residents of landscapes, but even local and state actors are actively contemplating and considering what infrastructure is going to look like on the landscape. And so, yes, we will encounter some major speed bumps. And that is just reality. Um, I think it is important to continue to innovate and experiment and think about what are the most clever kinds of process and process assistance tools we can use to get good stakeholder engagement. And I think we have to be realistic that um, it is unlikely to be as fast as we need it to be. I feel like there are sometimes two camps on this topic. There are some folks whose perspective is is like yours, Julia, which is, you know, you need to move at the speed of trust. And I, I think I probably fall more into that camp. And then I think there are others who, um, you know, adopt more of a motto of, you know, build fast and break things. And I think there's real, you know, societal challenges that that come with that build fast and break things model as we've seen in the in the social media space and, and elsewhere. I will say just to keep it to the report that one one distinction the report makes is we do recognize that there are foundational infrastructure investments that may require a let's say didactic approach to planning and implementation and that in the case of decarbonization arguably the single most important one is that interstate transmission backbone upon which all electrification essentially depends and so we do uh in chapter six which is addresses the electricity grid um include recommendations about the various permitting authorities that are going to be necessary to really speed that up. That said, I think, as as mentioned before, it is just such a vast landscape, and it is a federalist landscape in the United States. Um, and not speaking as a report author, but speaking as um, a person who has lived and watched the policy space in Montana, we are a good example. We gave um, eminent domain authority to private companies to try to speed up renewable deployment in the early 2000s. And while it's hard to attribute political change to any one particular issue, that certainly had um, produced some real concerns on the part of private property rights advocates that are now very influential in our state politics and won't necessarily make a lot of sacrifices right now in the interest of clean energy deployment. And part of that comes, I think, from this legacy of trying to get that controlled and power through legislation to move as quickly as possible. Yeah. And that brings us to the last question that I want to ask you before we go to our top of the stack segment. And 
I, we only have a couple minutes left, so this is a completely unfair question because it's so complicated, and uh, I'm going to ask you to try to answer it relatively quickly, which is like, how do you think about public engagement with segments of the public and their elected leaders who are skeptical of, if not downright opposed to, any efforts to decarbonize, to deeply reduce emissions? Um, how, how do you think about strategies for engaging with those individuals or, or those groups? You just have to put people on the ground and put relationships in front of and as a buffer to the widespread kind of misinformation and polarization that is so detracting from our ability to be a productive um, society right now. And I think that's that's maybe a strategy that works that I believe I have faith in as a strategy to help find a center, um, a point of agreement around important decisions, like decisions about where we're gonna put energy infrastructure in places where um, the politics are not necessarily gonna you know, accelerate that, right? So we need relationships that bring people to the table. And we have just seen this time and time again in the kind of resource peripheries where I work, that it is individual relationships and trust that help information flow and help move a conversation toward, okay, how can we do this in a way where everyone has to sacrifice some, but um, everybody hopefully can see as much of their um, their interests and needs met in this. Well, I think, Julie, your, your answer about relationships makes so much sense. I mean, I know I've seen in the policymaking world how much relationships matter. And in my own work, you know, with people who might have different viewpoints than me, developing trust, developing relationships, it's kind of um, foundational to any, any progress uh, on topics like this. So I really appreciate that answer. So now, um, before we close it out, I'd love to ask you to recommend something that's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack. It can be something you've read or watched or heard. Um, it can be related to the environment or not. We're not that picky. Um, but what would you recommend to our listeners, Julia? This is perhaps a bit of an oddball, but hopefully fun. And hopefully there are some fans out there that will understand this recommendation. I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with the filmmaker Frederick Wiseman, but he is a American documentarian that has created films about place and kind of key processes and about, I think it was in 2020, released the film City Hall, which is a four-hour non-narrated documentary um, about Boston City Hall. And it just covers every manner of meeting and public service discussion and public service action that that kind of came through City Hall in the year or so that they were filming. And if you want to kind of have the flavor of how decisions are made and play out in local government, there can be like nothing more rich than sitting down and just watching four hours of Boston City Hall. Um, it sounds strange, but I do think that this this reality of, of how do uh, local governments, state governments, even our federal agencies, how do they implement 
this massive kind of societal and political charge, a lot of that is in the everyday nitty gritty of how they work. Um, and this is something that just fascinates me. And City Hall is a, a movie that I hope to be able to come back to again and again. Wow. Julia, that recommendation sounds fascinating. Uh, we'll have a link to it in the show notes so people can go check it out. And of course, we'll have a link to the report uh, so people can dig into this really rich uh, product that is um, the result of so much work from so many smart people. Um, and we really appreciate you, Julia, coming onto the show and helping us understand this one really important slice uh, of the big picture. Um, it's been great talking to you. Likewise. Thanks so much for the opportunity. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.